Welcome to the Wealth Standard Radio Show, your gold standard in everything financial. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Wealth Standard Radio. Today is October 15th. If you can believe it, we are halfway through October already. It goes by fast. But uh, again, welcome to the Wealth Standard Radio today. Excited to have you on and listening. Uh, As you know, this is our new podcast uh, going from what we were doing to the Wealth Standard now. This is our new podcast, so you can listen to it live. Eventually, we will be taking live callers and answering your questions on online live. Um, but today, I wanted to kind of refer back to some of our resources to let you know some of the things that we have going on here at Paradigm Life. First and foremost, this is Ryan Lee. I'm not Patrick Donahoe. Uh, Patrick is out in San Francisco today at a sales, a sales conference. So I get to stand in his place today. Big shoes to fill, but I'm excited to be in this seat today. Uh, if you're looking for some additional resources in addition to what we're going to talk about today, please visit our website, ParadigmLife.net, www.ParadigmLife.net. On our website, we have a lot of new tools. One of the tools that many people like uh, is our Infinite 101 series. Uh, lots of information on there about this concept, about how it can help you specifically reach your financial goals. But some additional resources that we've added here in the last you know, couple weeks, couple months, we have a resources page. So again, on ParadigmLife.net, if you go and look on that site, you'll see a resources page. And on that page, we've kind of compiled some of our most trending hot content uh, over the last year, and we've put it right there accessible, readily accessible on the resources page. Webinars, podcasts, articles, all kinds of different things on there. We also have a new section on there that's titled Advisors or Meet Our Team. And on that, you can actually go through and see who's here. I learn a little bit more about me and who I'm with today, some of the people that are here at Paradigm Life, so you can get a little bit of better of a feel for who uh, who we are. One other resource I wanted to uh, throw your way. Uh, recently, we've launched a new uh, a new arm to Paradigm Life called the WealthStandard.com, uh, or the Wealth Standard. Our website is thewealthstandard.com, and on that website. Patrick has been doing webinars for the past six weeks on what this concept is and how this concept can help you. He's going to take those webinars and some of the feedback that's come back from those webinars and actually use it to write a book. So I'm pretty stoked about that. That's going to be a pretty awesome resource. But again, ParadigmLife.net or TheWealthStandard.com and appreciate you joining us today. So again, my name is Ryan Lee. I've been on these podcasts a couple times now, so I'm not going to take a lot of time and introduce myself today. But I am going to introduce the man sitting next to me, Spencer. Spencer's part of our team here. Uh, he's he's uh, an associate here at Paradigm Life. He has an awesome background and is doing amazing things here at Paradigm Life. And I am pleased to not only be office wall buddies with him, my office is right next to him, which I'm, I'm pretty stoked about, but I have, I'm pleased to have him here doing the podcast with me. So Spencer, welcome. Well, thanks for, thanks for having me, Ryan. I'm glad to be here. Um... I'm really excited to to be part of this. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of fun today. We're going to talk a little bit about where Spencer came from, and we're going to build upon his expertise uh, in, in specifically what it has to do with infinite banking. So, Spencer, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you come from? What brought you here? Okay, well, um, I I grew up here in, in Utah for the most part. Um, I spent a little bit of time outside of Utah, but um, I I've I'm, I like to refer to myself as a recovering attorney. Uh, <laughs> I, I spent about thirteen or fourteen years in the legal field, not all of that as an attorney, but um, uh, some of it before law school. I worked for a large law firm. I worked for uh, the attorney general of the state of Utah. Wow. Um, one of the U.S. district court judges here in here in Salt Lake. And I worked as a solo practitioner, small firm attorney as well. Um, I, during law school, I, I, well, I, I went into law school planning to work for a large firm, doing you know the corporate litigation and you know the you know, kind of what everyone thinks of as as attorneys. Um, law school changes your mind about a lot of things. Uh, I, I and it, a lot of it has to do with the professors there, maybe disillusioned uh, former cor- corporate attorneys. But I've a lot of what they said rang true with me. I, the corporate attorney life didn't didn't really appeal to me as much. Happened to be that I uh, graduated from law school right during the meltdown as well. Um, so best there time, right? Exactly. <laughs> there there weren't as many jobs available. Um, but I had already uh, more or less decided I kind of want to go out on my own. I want to start my own practice. Uh, you know, do what do what I want to do. I want to be the the first chair in lawsuits. I I want in in trials. I want to 
I want to decide who I'm who I'm going to take on as a client and things like that. Mm. Where with a with a corporate job, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna have that option. Okay, um, so you're out you're out out of law school, going to start your own practice. What kind of law did you specialize in? What 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 did you do to start your practice? I, I really left law school planning on on just doing really estate planning, okay. um, or at least the main focus of that uh, being estate planning, which is which is a lot of what I did. I kind of fell into, by helping out a friend, you know, appearing at a hearing and, and things like that, I uh, kind of fell into a, a tax uh, resolution and bankruptcy practice as well. Okay. So the, the vast majority of my time was spent on those three areas, estate planning, uh, tax resolution, and bankruptcy. Okay. Um, you know, it, it, was, it was a good practice. I enjoyed it at times. Other times I didn't. Tax, I really ended up hating. Um, Could you find any clients? I mean, was there anyone out there trying to resolve their tax situation? <laughs> yes. Uh, estate planning was a lot harder to find clients. Um, but there, shortly after the meltdown, bankruptcy and tax resolution clients were easy to come by. Mm. Um, you know, many, many people were, were filing bankruptcy. Many, many people had uh, reduced their withholdings in their, in, from their job. Uh, so they ended up having a huge tax bill uh, later on. Okay. Or they had... They had been operating a business and not been paying their quarterly taxes, and so as a result, they end up with a huge tax bill that they can't come, they can't come up with the money, um, and so there was a lot of tax resolution and a lot of bankruptcy uh, that I that I that I represented. Okay, I'm so, helping clients obviously, uh, you know, mitigate some of those those unfortunate things. A lot of what we do here is the same thing, right? We help people plan for and work through their estates, um, help people manage reduce taxes and put themselves in a better situation. So tell us a little bit about how you went from being a highly prestigious lawyer to come over here to uh, to Paradigm Life. What was the transition like for you? Well, I I was always looking for a way to help clients um better their situation. You know, my estate estate planning clients were usually in a in a decent situation, um maybe not as wealthy as they'd like, but they weren't they they were worried about the future. They were planning for the future. Um, to prevent a bad situation. Uh, so I was looking for something to help them. But my, my bankruptcy and tax clients, they needed help. Uh, they needed help in the immediate future. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were in a bad situation. They were trying to get out of that situation. Um, and I ended up finding that many of my clients came back over and over again. I would resolve a tax issue for them, and a year and a half later, they'd be they'd be back in my office hmm. saying, "I'm I'm in the same situation," or you know, I file they file a bankruptcy, and you know there are limitations on how often you can file a bankruptcy, uh, but but they'd be back, and we'd be waiting out the clock to to the next time we could file that bankruptcy. Just kind um, of a repeating cycle, huh? Exactly. Okay. Um, many of my clients, uh, many of my bankruptcy clients were. Uh, we're filing bankruptcies, uh, Chapter Seven bankruptcy, every every eight years, wow. as often as you could. Wow! Um, so I was really looking for a tool that would help all of my clients, and I actually have known one of the advisors here for for about fourteen years. Um, uh, one one evening, uh, we were sitting around a sitting around the dining room table and and talking, and he was telling me about this new uh, this new concept that he was he was working with. Um, and it was really um, over overfunding whole life insurance. And he's actually an advisor here at, here at Paradigm. Um, and I, when I when I was listening to him, my my initial reaction was, he's either not understanding the concept. He's you know it, it, he he's relatively new to the concept, so he he's not quite getting exactly what it is. Or this has got to be some sort of a scam. It can't um, be true, right? It's, it's, it's too, too good to be, be true. true. <laughs> the, the IRS doesn't let you do anything tax-free. Right. There's no, there's no option. I'd spent thousands of hours on the phone with the IRS. Um, there's no way that they let you get away with this. Right. So um, he kind of directed me to some resources. Um, I ended up signing up for an Infinite 101 account. I plowed through those videos um, uh, in a weekend. My wife was ready to kill me because I was <laughs> I was on the computer the whole time with my headphones on, and and every five minutes she would ask me a question, and I'd have to pause it, pull my earphone out, and say, "What? What'd you say?" And and she was she was ready to kill me. But uh, I plowed through that. 
um, I got I got some of the books. I got Nelson Nash's book, the uh, Becoming Your Own Banker. I, I read How Privatized Banking Really Works. Um, I even researched the Internal Revenue Code. I, you know, I've, you did I, your homework. I, I did my homework. Okay. It, yeah. how, just for for our clients out there listening, how did one hundred and one help you kind of overcome some of your initial objections or concerns? Well, it, it really one hundred and one. Um, so so I I was introduced to the concept in a in a really broad. Uh, just kind of generic terms. And he wasn't trying to sell me on it, where he was just explaining what he does. Right. Um, Infinite 101 took me a, a bit deeper. It took me into individual concepts. It, took, it gave me the history of, of life insurance. It gave me some, uh, some basics on, on things like how we finance everything we purchase um, and, and things like that. Really, when it when I was first introduced to it, one of my biggest catches was uh, was one that many of our clients have, and that is, why would I pay interest to borrow my own money? Yeah. And when it, when I went through Infinite One Hundred One uh, and and discussed it in in greater detail, um, I I found that you're not actually borrowing your money, your own money. Um, it's, it's just an asset that you, you have access to. You got it. And we're not here to talk about one-on-one today, but sure. that is a good resource. And I just wanted to kind of point that out again to people who are listening. That's a great way to overcome, you know, initial objections, misconceptions, myths about what this concept actually is. So you're going through one-on-one, you're reading books, you're doing your due diligence. What, what transitioned you from that point to sitting in this chair next to me? So the more I the more I read, the more I became convinced uh, this is something uh, that I want to do for myself. And I, I was I was doing the research on the other side too. I wasn't just reading the the pro uh, pro uh, in, infinite banking concept. Right, right. You know? um, I was I was you know listening to Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman and and those who, who the dark say, side, the dark side, <laughs> <laughs> those who say that this is the most evil thing you could yeah, do. Yeah. Um, uh, and before this, I was a big Dave Ramsey. Uh, I, I believed in his system, um, uh, having been a bankruptcy attorney, mm-hmm. I didn't believe that you shouldn't ever file bankruptcy, uh, cause that was my livelihood. But, um, but the more I researched it, the more I found this is something I want for myself. Okay. I want to set this up for me and my family. Um, and I found that this is a great tool for all of my clients. Um, I did more and more research. I, I, found how you know how I could use this with my clients and things like that but I was becoming more and more disillusioned with my practice mm-hmm. I was spending uh, hundreds of hours on the phone with the IRS every month um, most of it on hold uh, just waiting to talk to someone who didn't have any clue what they were talking about uh, wasting uh, wasting time constantly um, bankruptcy clients they were coming back I was being frustrated by that um, I loved my estate planning practice. I really enjoyed it, but it was harder and harder to find clients because you know the while the economy is recovering, uh, we as normal people aren't really feeling that at this right, point. Right, right. Um, so estate planning was harder and harder to come by for clients. Um, and the more I looked into it, the more I realized, you know, I want to help people. I want to help them get into a better financial situation. And I think transitioning to this may be, uh, a great way to do that. So I ended up uh, uh, talking to to my friend who's a who's a, an advisor here, and we we discussed it. Um, and I came in and met with some of the uh, some of the leadership here, some of the executives here, and and we decided that uh, yeah, it would be a great a great transition for me. That's and, awesome. And I started uh, back in January, so I've been here about nine months. That is great. And I'll tell you what, just sitting next door to you in the in our offices. You have made a dramatic impact, and your your legal background, I think, brings so much credibility and expertise to this field because what we do here with clients is pretty much what you are doing in your law career, yeah. but in a, in a little bit more of a focused way. We're trying to help people protect what they have, utilize what they have, preserve what they have, and pass on what they have more efficiently, oftentimes, which is through minimizing and avoiding tax, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about that. So this concept gives people the ability to maximum fund a whole life contract. As you originally started looking into that, you thought, why on earth would people do that? Why do people maximum fund a whole life contract? What's the purpose of that? Well, the, really, the purpose is to build cash value. Okay. Cash value is going to be the key to unlocking all of the living benefits of a life insurance policy. Okay. Key distinction right there. We just said life insurance, and then we also said living. What, what does that mean? Well, traditionally, life insurance is solely for the death benefit. Okay. Um, uh, it, we, we take a, a bit of a different approach here. We're looking to, uh, to 
give you a death benefit, sure, because a death benefit is very important. But we're looking to to open up the living benefits of this policy. We want you to have access to uh, to those benefits during your life, rather than just paying a lot of money for a death benefit that's going to go on to your to your beneficiaries. You can use that that policy during your life to better your situation and better their situation, and still pass on something to them. Blows my mind. I remember when I was learning about this concept for the first time too, you know, I always thought life insurance is bad, right? Buy term and invest the difference. That's what everyone is taught out there. I didn't even have any insurance when I was learning about this, but I always thought insurance is you pay for something and then you put it up on a shelf. You don't want to die, but in the odd events or the unexpected event that you do die, your family is taken care of. But there's nothing to do with any living benefits. So you're telling me if we fund, and well, not fund, but if we set up a contract appropriately and then fund it appropriately, we can use it our, the entire time we're alive in addition to having the death benefit? Exactly. It's exactly. exactly what we focus on here, yeah. right? That's what makes this thing fun. So let's talk a little bit more about how we use the living benefits of this concept to really help people achieve their goals. One of the biggest goals that people have in their wealth planning, whether it's you know using qualified plans or anything else, is to how to minimize their tax burden. What what is a tax burden, and how does that impact most people's financial plans? From your your point of view, well, a tax burden is a huge burden. Um, it's going to it's going to uh, impact every aspect of your life. It's gonna it has a huge impact on the amount of cash you have available for your purchases. Um, you know your your everyday living purchases. Uh, many many of my clients uh, were living basically at poverty line or very very little above that. And because of the taxes that they were uh, that they were having to pay, they didn't have uh, they didn't have money to make those necessary car repairs, uh, let alone buy a new car. They didn't have the ability to to uh, make any of these purchases. They were they were barely barely getting by, and taxes was a huge part of that of that burden. Okay, so as we as we talk specifically about people's financial plans, right? People are sit, you know trying to take the income that they get after tax make the most efficient use of it. And most people try to divert some of their income to some types of, type of a savings plan, right? Exactly. I, you know, today, most people put their money in some form of a qualified plan. In fact, I had a statistic on my desk a couple weeks ago. 75% of people preparing for retirement, their, their number one tool that they use is some form of a qualified plan. Whether it's a 401k, a Roth IRA, a SEP, or whatever it is, but it's a qualified plan. So let's talk a little bit about what a qualified plan is. Why is it a qualified plan, and who is qualifying it? So that's a great question. Uh, who's qualifying it? The government. Uh, the IRS is qualifying it. Uh, all qualified plans will have some sort of an IRS uh, denomination to it. So uh, a 401k refers to uh, Section 401, uh, subsection K of the Internal Revenue Code. Um, uh, any of those, any of those number, or any of those plans are going to have some sort of an IRS uh, designation to it, and really. All a qualified plan is doing is it's deferring your taxes to some point in the future. You don't have to pay taxes on it right now. You're going to have to pay taxes on it later. Okay. That's a really, really good distinction. So there's two things I always like to point out with the clients that I'm working with. You mentioned the IRS, right? We all know who the IRS is. If we break it down, what does the IRS actually stand for? Internal Revenue Service. Okay. So it's Internal Revenue Service. So there's revenue somewhere in there. Yeah. Who is that revenue actually for? Is that for me and you or is that for someone else? That, that revenue is for the, uh, for the administration of the federal government. Okay. So the Internal Revenue Services, uh, excuse me, the IRS Internal Revenue Service is qualifying some type of a financial plan out there. Mm-hmm. They've got their stamp of approval on it. And then we then put money into that plan. If the Internal Revenue Service, if their main goal is to generate revenue for them, not us, is that qualified plan potentially going to be the best place for, our, for us to put our money? I, even before coming here, I would have said no. <laughs> but uh, the more I've researched uh, and, and really the concepts that we teach here, um, the more I've found that no. I mean, the IRS doesn't have your best interest at heart. They have theirs at heart. They're, they want to maximize the funds that they're bringing in. Exactly. And who wins in that equation? I mean, it's the IRS. So think about our taxes today. Before we ever get our money, if it's a payroll that we're getting, a check, if we're taking money out of a savings account or anything like that, we always pay taxes first. Mm-hmm. So from a qualified plan, even if we defer our taxes in the future, What's the purpose of a qualified plan? Why are we putting money in there in the beginning? What are we trying to accomplish? Well, with a qualified plan, what you're trying to do is plan for retirement. Uh, that's you know, it's it's a qualified meaning the IRS approves of it. 
uh, and it's tax deferred. But the plan is referring to a retirement plan. You're using that to uh, to save for retirement. Okay, so we want a stream of income in the future. Now, exactly. if we're kicking that liability, that tax liability down the road, think about how um, you know on. What is the right word here? Illogical. I don't, that's probably the best thing. How illogical is this to say, okay, I could pay tax today. I know what my tax liability is today, but rather than doing that today, I'm going to kick that liability down the road for really when I need income the very most. I mean, you're retired. You're not working. You don't have any other source of income. But before that income ever comes back to you, it has to pass through the IRS's hands, and you'll be taxed at a future tax rate. And a lot of people don't think about right now, especially our younger clients who, are, who still have a family and are paying for their home and things like that. They have more tax deductions now. They're going to be in a much lower tax bracket now than they're going to be in the future when they don't have the, the dependents at home and th that they can take a deduction on. Or if their house is paid off, they don't have the mortgage deduction. Um, and all of a sudden, that deferral of taxes to some point in the future where you don't even know what the rate's going to be, even if the rates stay the same, the chances of you paying a higher rate later on are, are significant. Okay, hold on. You're, you're blowing my mind now because I was always told that when we retire, we're going to retire in a lower bracket, right? So, I mean, isn't that the common man mantra out there, retire in a lower tax bracket? Sure, if you want to uh, be living on a, a lot less money than you're living on right now. Okay, so traditional financial planning says that when you retire, you should try to, I mean, you're going to need about 70 to 80% of your pre-retirement income. Some of your liabilities will go away. Maybe your house is paid off. You're not, you know, you're not providing for children. You're not putting money into qualified plans anymore. So you might not need 100% of what your income was prior to retirement, but you're still going to need between 70 and 80%. At least. At least, right? And so if you're going to bring your income down, you're kind of going farther and farther down the poverty line, and that's the only way to maybe, maybe, maybe diminish your taxes. Exactly. But one of the liabilities are who's in control of the tax brackets? Who's in control of what the tax standards are? Is it you and me? Yeah, we have absolutely no control. They would say that we have, oh, yeah. uh, we have control by, uh, by electing our, our officials. But I have no. a bumper sticker on my car that says I don't have any control. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So we, we, have, we have no control over what the taxes are going to be. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the IRS. Uh, I was pulling up a few little facts about the IRS. So the IRS, uh, the federal tax system, was implemented in 1913. Yes. Okay. So in 1913, it was supposed to be a temporary tax. Now, prior to 1913, there was a temporary tax to help fund some war expenditures back in the 1890s, which was a temporary tax, and then it went away. But in, in 1913, we instituted the federal tax system as a temporary tax has it been temporary? No. And is it ever going to go away? No. Probably not, right? So I want to just read something that I pulled out of the 16th Amendment. So the 16th Amendment is actually what made it constitutionally legal for the federal government to tax our, our revenue as individuals, right? Our so, income. Yeah. So pre prior to the 16th Amendment, um, taxes uh, had, to be, had to be levied on, a, uh, on an equal basis. They couldn't be uh, from state to state. So each state had to had to pay the same amount in taxes, uh, regardless of how many uh, how many people lived in the state. Um, so it wasn't based on population; it was based on state. Now, the with the Sixteenth Amendment, it allowed the federal government to tax individuals, which prior to that would not have been allowed. Good distinction. So now we can tax individuals. Where we all feel it. I mean, we just kind of are born into this environment where it's just part of life, right? It wasn't supposed to be part of life. It was supposed to be temporary. Yeah. It hasn't been temporary. But this is what the 16th Amendment says, or part of it. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without appointment among the, among the several states and without regard to any consensus or enumeration. Who has the power? Congress has the power. Okay, it's not us, right? No. If, we, if taxes go up in the future... We have no control over that. We might cast a vote, but ultimately we have no control over that. And if we invest in the common way that most people invest, we're deferring and kicking that liability down the road to ultimately where we need the income the most, right? Exactly. Kind of a scary thing. So you worked with clients to help them minimize their tax burden. You're doing that today now. How can this concept help people minimize and reduce their tax burden? Well, really, uh, the idea here is you're going to uh, create a, a pool of cash value that okay. you're going to be able to uh, access the equivalent of. Uh, you're going to be able to borrow against that cash value. Now, as this policy grows and, and uh, advances, you're going to have more and more 
uh, cash in there than what you've actually paid in. You're going to have growth that if it was sitting in a bank account, uh, you would have paid uh, interest, uh, paid taxes on that in on that interest, on that growth. Okay. Uh, but with this type of a policy, that growth, as long as it is properly structured and we fund it in the proper way that we, we go into great detail about, um, you are able to access that growth and utilize that without ever paying taxes on it. Okay, that's a really interesting distinction there. So we want this to qualify as a life insurance policy, right? Yes. As long as it qualifies as a life insurance policy, we get the tax benefits that life insurance policies get. Exactly. There is one rule that we have to follow. It's the modified endowment contract rule. Explain a little bit about that. What is that rule? So really a modified endowment contract, um, it, it boils down to essentially you have too much cash value in relation to the death benefit that you have. So the IRS is saying uh, with that, and this is inter Internal Revenue Code Section 7702. Um, and the IRS is basically saying uh, at that point when you cross that threshold, you are modifying the, the primary aspect of this policy. It's no longer a primarily a life insurance policy, although it, it still is. It's primarily now a savings tool. And as a result, it's going to be taxed when you utilize the growth the way that a, a savings account would be taxed okay. as ordinary income. Okay, as ordinary income. So that's a really good distinction, right? I mean, if we set up this policy and we cross that threshold and the account turns into a modified endowment contract, we lose the tax benefits. The growth is taxed if we're using it while we're still alive. If, there, if we take any distributions before 59 and a half, it's 10% you know, penalty plus yeah. the tax. So it works a lot like traditional 401ks and qualified plans, right? Exactly. So we want the policy to be set up to be structured and qualified as a life insurance contract. Does that minimize, does that limit how much a person can put in? Sure, it does. It definitely does. Um, there's going to be, depending on the company, there's going to be a, a ratio of, of the amount of, um, of paid up addition versus base. Mm -hmm. um, that we, you know, Each company is a little bit different on that. Um, but it's going to limit the amount of cash you can get into the policy in relation to the death benefit. Okay. So when we work with clients, we ask them what your goals are. What money do we have that we can work with? You know, how much money do we want to put in on an annual basis? And at that point, we kind of set up the policy to where we've got a minimum and a maximum. Mm -hmm. And if they ever get up to that maximum, you know, we kind of cut them off and say, okay, that's as much as you can put into the policy. We don't want more because that'll give you more cash value than you're qualified to have in that policy. What do clients do at that point? At that point, they're, they're more, than, more than welcome to open up a second policy. Okay, really interesting, right? So many people who use this concept ultimately end up having multiple policies. You know, I think of a policy as a bucket, right? You set up the bucket that's appropriate for you today. If you can save $10,000 a year, we set up a policy that accommodates roughly $10,000 a year. Give you a little bit of wiggle room on the high end and on the low end, but roughly that's kind of what we're shooting for. Sure. Once we can consistently fill up that bucket, it's full, and if we still want to do more, well, we're not really limited. We can actually set up another policy, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So you can use this system, duplicate your efforts, duplicate your policies, and really protect your wealth from current and future taxes, right? Exactly. And one, one thing um, many clients are, are sometimes a little bit confused about it initially, the modified endowment contract rule is on a per-contract basis. Um, it analyzes each individual contract. It's not on a on a whole as a for a person. But even if it was, uh, even if it were, you, you look at it as uh, when you start that new policy, you're adding more death benefit, so you're able to get more cash into the whole system. That, um, so it, it works either way. That's a great distinction. And really, for clients out there, we set up your policies very unique and specific to you. You know, if you come to us and say, "Hey," I've got the ability right now where I want millions of dollars of cash value inside of a policy. We can set up a policy big enough to accommodate that, right? Exactly. If you come to us and say, hey, I've got a couple thousand dollars, we can set up a policy big enough to accommodate that as well. So each policy is set up really uniquely uh, set up to, to accomplish the goals of that specific individual. Yeah, we, we run the gamut on clients. Uh, we have, uh, I have clients right now that we're talking about 100 to $150 a month, mm -hmm. uh, and I've had clients who have who've dumped in thousands and thousands of dollars in the first year. This is really interesting. So if you guys are interested out there, I mean, we're talking pretty high level, but if you want a more specific analysis on how this system will work for you, check out some of those resources I mentioned in the beginning, right? Go to our website, Call us, email us. Uh, we would love to meet with you one-on-one. -on -one. You know, Spencer and all of the other advisors here will actually sit down with you and, and put together a tailored, customized plan for your unique situation. Taxes, that's, that's a pretty big subject out there. I want to spend a little bit more time on that, and then we're going to transition away. 
Are taxes going away? Is the federal tax burden going away? Well, if if we look at what the um, what the federal debt is, um, and if we watch the the debt clock, um, you'll notice that it's never going down. Yeah, the debt is always growing. And how are we going to pay for that debt? Uh, the only way to do it is is tax. Well, realistically, are we ever going to be able to pay for it? I I doubt it. But uh, the only way to prevent it from uh, from completely destroying the country is to continue to to uh, levy taxes. Yeah. So federal tax, the brackets, bracketed system, we had an increase in that just a couple of years ago, right? The top, the top marginal tax bracket on the federal side went up. It's the first time it went up in about, what, 10, 15 years, I yeah, believe, about, something like about that? about 15 years. You, you brought up a point, and um, I, you know, unless you've got a really strong stomach, I probably wouldn't encourage you to go look at this website. But if you do, sit down, take a deep breath, but look at debtclock.org, and you'll kind of see a running tally of what our federal debt is. Now, I pulled some numbers off that right before we got on this uh, call here today, or on this webinar. Uh, let's see what we've got here. So unfunded, huh, let's just go to the, the national debt. So the national federal debt is almost $18 trillion. We're just approaching $18 trillion. And as you mentioned, that debt clock is just constantly running, 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 and going up. So if we look at what the national debt is, if we just break it down per individual taxpayer, just to get us to break even, every one of us would have to come up with $152,000 today mm -hmm. just to get us back to break even. And in, in today's day and age, there's no, there's no possibility of Absolutely, that. right? So that's just the federal debt. If we go down a little bit further and we really start to dig down this trench a little bit further, we look at some of the other bigger things out there. You know, we, we've been in some type of a war, it seems like, for, for quite some time now. That's not part of the federal debt. Some of the unfunded liabilities like Medicare, um, Social Security, those are not considered as part of the federal debt. If we actually look at everything wrapped up together, again, not including war, though, but mm -hmm. just some of the unfunding liabilities, $115 trillion in yeah. outstanding liabilities. There's there's no possibility of taxes uh, disappearing or going down or going down right and we're and and you'll find that that debt is constantly growing it's never going down the taxes that are being brought in aren't aren't even enough to cover uh, the the federal budget uh, on an on an annual basis yeah um, so there's no at least uh, in the in the next twenty to thirty years there's no possibility of taxes going down so. That brings up an interesting topic right there, right? I mean, we, we can't really control what's happening in the federal government. We can put our voice out there. We can try to do our, our very best to get, to get the popular opinion out there. It may. We might start to improve on that situation. I sincerely hope we do. Sure. But what we can do is we can work to improve our personal economy, our personal life. These contracts are really private contracts between a private individual and a private insurance company. We've talked about some of the tax benefits that they offer today. But really, if, if we're thinking about our financial plan today and we're saving money for when we need it in the future, if we're kicking that liability down the road of taxes, we're really deferring a huge liability, a huge liability. We're, we're just talking about federal taxes. We're not talking about inflation and how, how that will impact taxes, sales tax, all of the other many types of taxes out there. So the way I think it's probably a common consensus, the way I look at it, if we can minimize that burden, if we can shelter your capital and put it into a system where you do not have to worry about that liability, what does that do for people? Oh, it, it opens the doors to all kinds of things. I mean, it, 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 it's going to take a huge weight off your shoulders, um, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to open the doors to, to all kinds of, uh, of available options to you. Okay. Please, please, please call us, email us, check in. If you're interested in learning more about that, call and check in. Um, let's transition a little bit. We've kind of talked about taxes. I'm a little bit depressed now. <laughs> I'm glad it's Halloween because that is kind of scary. But uh, let's transition into something maybe a little bit more fun. Another part of your law practice was estate planning, right? Helping people preserve and pass on their wealth more efficiently. Tell me a little bit about what the idea of estate planning is. Well, really, estate planning is to to take what your what assets you have now and what assets you you acquire in the future and pass them on to your to your descendants, to your your kids or your whatever beneficiaries you choose in the most efficient way, in a way that's going to give them more uh, than than they might otherwise have if it if it just passed through probate. Okay, what are some of the tools strategies used that by most people in estate planning in general? So normally, your everyone should have a will, 
Um, every every individual should have have a will, um, and most estate planners are going to recommend that you have a trust as well. For a little while there, and since the um, since the federal estate uh, tax exemption uh, increased, uh, some people have gone away from from recommending a trust. I still recommend that everyone should have a trust, um, and that's because a trust is going to give you as much. Uh, control as possible on your assets uh, after you've passed away. Okay, perfect. So it's about preserving your assets and passing them on more efficiently. Exactly. So let's transition that idea into what we do here at Paradigm Life. How do we use this concept to help people protect, preserve, and pass on their assets? Well, really, it's it's almost like setting up a trust, setting up a, a, a policy the way we do it, a banking policy. Mm-hmm. Um, you are you have access to that asset during your life in a trust if you're the if you're the trustor the the operator of the trust you have access to those those uh, assets you can use them however however you deem uh, most beneficial um, and the a life insurance policy is going to be the same way you have access to to the amount of cash value that you have you can use it for whatever purpose um, but at the end of the day when you pass away whatever in, in, on a trust side of things whatever is in the trust is going to be uh, passed on the way that you've structured it. And the life insurance policy works the same way. You get to determine who your beneficiaries are. Um, if you have a trust, you can make the trust the beneficiary and then control uh, how those monies are spent as well. Beautiful. And I'll tell you what, this is probably one of my favorite topics in this in this system is using this policy to create, you know, we call it family banking you can call it estate planning. You can call it on, you know, passing your assets on more efficiently. But family banking. So if we set up a policy with the intention of protecting, preserving our wealth, we can do that in a policy. But we also can utilize it more efficiently as well while we're still alive. So one of the aspects of family banking is actually having a system and a structure in place that we can utilize, but then utilizing it with a strategy to improve our family situation, to build our family situation, to protect it, and for me, family banking is a huge aspect. Well, what are your thoughts on family banking? Well, so I'm you know, relatively new to the to the concept. I'm uh, about a, I'm, I'm about a year in from having been introduced. I have set up a policy for myself, uh, a whole life policy. I have a term policy as well, uh, and we have a term policy on my wife that I plan on uh, converting here probably within the next year into a whole life policy. Uh, soon we will start uh, policies on our two kids. Um, and my idea with this is, you know, my kids are still relatively young, three and seven. Um, they're not needing, uh, access to cash at this point, but my plan is to build up that cash value before they need it. So maybe when my, when my son turns 16 and he wants a new car, we can start to teach him about the value of money, how, how to utilize credit and things like that. And he can take a loan out from our personal bank, our family bank. Um, that cash value that we have, and we can teach him how to repay things where it's not going to affect his his credit in a negative way while he's learning. Okay, you just brought up one of my favorite words in this concept, and it's teaching, right? If you have a system in place, right, a family bank, you don't have to put that family bank up on a shelf and say, okay, when I die, family, you get X amount of dollars. That really does no favors or services to your family. I mean, if we look at what money actually is, Does money in and of itself have any intrinsic value? No. It's just a piece of paper, right? We can give a dollar to someone who will go buy a cheeseburger with it, or we can give a dollar to someone who might go start a business with it. So it really depends on the skills, the resources, and the teaching around that money. So a family bank, in my opinion, is a way to protect and preserve capital, but it's a way to facilitate teaching, teaching experiences for our family. Most people, when when they have an estate plan, the way I've seen them is most of the time, you know, the money is just kind of in the estate. And the family, for the most part, doesn't really know oftentimes what's in that estate. And then when the father or the mother passes away or the parents pass away, that money is all of a sudden passed on to the next generation. But without any context, without any education to go with that money being passed on, what oftentimes happens to that capital? Well, I, I have some some personal friends who have who have been through things like that. And I know other people that I wouldn't call friends either, but... Um, they have you know, come into millions of dollars of, of, um, of money just all of a sudden when a, a parent passes away or when they reach a certain age and their trust that they haven't had access to all of a sudden gives them several million dollars. Uh, nine times out of ten, well, maybe not that high, but uh, very, very frequently they're going to blow that money. 
shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, exactly. right? I mean, that's usually what happens. I mean, that's just a common saying that if you pass on wealth, with by the third generation, that wealth is gone in most cases, right? Exactly. So what is the what's the what's the difference there? If you're passing on money, what needs to go with that money to actually make that money preserve, protect, and grow? The the key is education. Okay. If, if you teach your kids how to how to manage their money by using this family banking system, and teach them about creating the banking system for themselves, um, and and prolonging that, and they teach it to their kids. It's no longer going to be shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. It's going to be prolonged growth. You got it. You know, this is a really fun topic for me. I I actually have some really personal experiences with this where, you know, I decided to teach my my family, my kids using this system. And uh, I'll just share this story because, you know, for me, it really changed my perspective on money and what it's used for. So I've got a son. Uh, My oldest son is now eight. But when he was seven, he wanted to buy a new bike, right? Little kid wants a bike. Uh, he had a bike. It wasn't the best. He kind of was growing up. And so we went, and I, my wife and I decided to use this as our first you know, teaching experience for our son. So we, we, we were you know, pretty methodical in how we set this, this experience up for him. We didn't know what the outcome would be. but So we t- took him to the store. We found the bike that my son wanted. Now, this is a 7-year-old, okay? Uh, my 7-year-old is earning allowance. We, we've have, we have him doing some jobs and some things like that. Uh, so he, you know, he earns a couple dollars a week, but not a whole lot. So we take him to the store, we find the bike, and he's super excited, right? It's gray, it's got these cool stickers on it. I can't remember what they're called, but it has those little bumpers on the back where a friend could stand on the the wheel or something like that, you know? He's excited. We come home, the bike costs $176. It has some gears on it. It's kind of a lot of money for a bike for a kid, but $176. So he has no context of what money is at this point. It's just $176, and if he wants it, mom and dad will slide that little plastic thing, you know, through the little plastic credit card dispenser, and now we get the bike. So we come home and we decide to calculate his allowance. If my son took his allowance and saved it, how long would it take him to have enough money to buy this bike? It's going to take him almost a year and a half. And immediately, he was dejected. He was sad. He was depressed. There was no reality for that bike to come into his life anytime soon. So that's when we introduced the concept of infinite banking or the concept of family banking. We told him about you know, the access to a family bank that we had. We didn't tell him it was an insurance policy, but he had the ability to take a loan from the family bank. With this loan, though, he was actually becoming an integral member of our family bank. He had to, number one, have the intention to pay that loan off. He had to meet some minimum standards, you know, kind of qualifying for the loan, school, jobs, things like that, nothing really too major. But he had to have the intention of paying the loan back. Now, if we used his allowance, it was going to take him quite some time to do that. So we introduced the concept of creating value for other people. Money is simply just a symbol of value. If you create value for people, they will compensate you for that value with a couple of dollars, right? So we introduced this concept of creating value and just kind of planted some seeds in his mind. What, it, what could he do to create more value? It was amazing to see what he did. He, he, my son loves Legos. He built a Lego pinball machine. He took it to his grandma's work. I mean, the Lego pinball machine was awesome. We posted it on YouTube. But he took it to his grandmother's work, and people paid him to play his Lego pinball machine. He went through his closet. He found a bunch of old toys that he wasn't really playing with anymore, and he sold them on Craigslist. He made cookies three different times and had a a lemonade-slash-cookie stand throughout the summer. My son had his loan paid off in just over three months. Wow. And it was pretty amazing. So the cool thing about this was when he took that loan, he took ownership of the experience. He took ownership of that bike. And I don't know if you've ever given your kids anything, but it seems like as soon as you give it to them, they play with it for a week and then it's broken or it's in a closet and you know they just don't take care of it, right? Exactly. So my son took ownership of this bike. It was his bike. And when he got done riding that bike, he put it in the garage. He cleared out everything you know, away from the bike. He put the kickstand up. He parked his bike. That was his baby. He paid back the loan, and now he's taken a loan a second time to buy an iPad. And now I, I, we kind of opened up Pandora's box <laughs> because now, I mean, we, were, we went on a boating trip just a couple weeks ago. And when we were coming back, he was pitching me on, on an idea to take a loan to buy a boat. <laughs> <laughs> but this was a teaching tool. Now he understands the, the opportunity that he has, the bank that he has access to, the requirements to access that capital, and what he can do to not only access that capital – but to utilize it for productive purposes and build the family bank, thus increasing intergenerational wealth. Exactly. What are your thoughts on that? I, I mean, I think it's it's an amazing uh, it's an amazing tool. I'm I'm actually trying to go through a similar process with my seven year old right now. 
uh, we're not quite uh, as effective as that at this point. We're planning a, a trip here in about a, a month and a half to Disney World. Nice. Um, we have a giant apple tree in our backyard. And I've told my, my son, hey, I will pay you, you know, X amount of dollars every week if you go out and you pick up uh, all the apples. Uh, right now, for, for a couple of weeks, it worked great. Um, we, it was during the summer. Things were going well. Uh, there weren't that many apples dropping every week. Uh, it, wasn't a big, it wasn't a big deal. Now I'm spending between 20 minutes and half an hour every week uh, picking up apples before I can mow the back lawn. Um, and he has lost his, his drive, um, although he was planning on saving that money um, each, each week. To, to go towards uh, Disney World, and I think he's gonna he's gonna get to Disney World and realize, well, I I didn't I didn't save the way I was going to, and I think at that point my wife and I are going to going to really uh, introduce the idea of a loan, and let him know, hey, you know, we have some we have access to some of this. Uh, we if you want to buy that that toy here at Disney World, you can, um, but you're going to you're going to borrow the money yourself. You didn't earn it. Um, so you're going to borrow it from our family bank and pay it back, and we'll we'll have that discussion with him. You know, I, I think that you're doing that is pretty awesome. For me, um, you know, I grew up in a family where we we learned a few financial. Well, we learned some good financial principles, right? We learned not to go into debt. We learned to work, right? To work for the for the money that we had, but we didn't really talk about money that often. And I think that might be the case in many families, right? Most families, it's kind of taboo to talk about money. Yeah. And most people get their financial education from Dave Ramsey, from mm -hmm. if they do take some time, maybe they read some books, but most people have very little personal financial education. And when they graduate school, they just do what is told to them by their HR advisor and put their money into a qualified plan. For me, I think fa that family banking gives us some of the same benefits of, as estate planning of protecting and preserving and passing on wealth, but it really gives the opportunity to use teaching experiences to build family missions, to build a family motto, to build a family purpose. Because if money has no intrinsic value in it of itself, you can use this concept to teach true principles to your, to your family, to your kids, that will change the course of their financial future forever. Yeah. It's pretty powerful. It, it is. And I, I mean, I have a lot of clients who, who come to me and they say, well, why didn't I know about this when I was 18? Yeah. I've, I've thought the same thing. You know, if the, the sooner you start, whether you're, whether you're 18 or whether you're, you're 75 or whatever, the sooner you start, the better off it's going to be. And you can use that as a teaching tool. And many of my clients who are approaching retirement or, or, um, or thereabouts and have kids who are, you know, in their twenties, they're setting up a policy on themselves, and then they're they're sending their their twenty year old kid to me and yeah. saying, "Hey, you need to start this now. Get it going, and it and it and then use it throughout your life, and you can use it with your family." Um, well, and you bring up a really good point. I mean, time is the key for any financial growth because of compounding interest. Exactly. Most fi you know most financial products, your compounding is up and down because of volatility. In this product, you will always have consistent compounding interest. So the longer you can compound, you kind of achieve that hockey stick thing, right? Exactly. Where it goes slow, it goes slow, and then all of a sudden, bam, it's taken off. But not only can you preserve that growth, you can actually utilize your policy all the way throughout without diminishing that growth. And that's one of the, the key distinguishing factors of this concept and how it can not only be used as an estate planning tool, but you can also use it as a teaching tool, as a family bank to build a set of fi family principles and to teach your kids financial lessons. And and for me, man, it's so fun. You know, that when, when I had no idea how it was going to play out with my son on that first loan, but just to watch the creativity and just to watch the way, you know, by doing something, he learned lessons. And those lessons are now learned. Mm -hmm. Learned. <laughs> Maybe he needs to teach me something. But, you know, <laughs> those lessons are learned, and now those lessons will impact his life. And, and, you know, he can use those tools to create more financial success and more financial prosperity in his life and eventually my future grandchildren's life and their, you know, kids and kids and kids and so on and so forth. If these lessons get passed down, through a family bank, the bank can essentially grow from generation to generation to generation, can be utilized to accomplish family purposes all the way throughout. And imagine this. Imagine your great-great-great-grandchild, right, getting ready to do something. Let's just say go to school. If that great-great-great-grandchild has to act or gets the opportunity to access the family bank, and in order to access the family bank, they have to learn what the family bank is, 
learn about who set it up, why that person set it up, what their the the mission and the values were behind that. Do you think you will matter to that great 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 grandchild? Absolutely. I mean, you're going to be a, you're going to be a key role in you're going to play a key role in all future generations as long as this bank is is going and setting it up properly and teaching your your kids how to use it um, will will keep that that bank going. It's awesome. It's not even about money, right? It's about producing education, providing value, helping your family. As we talked about earlier, it's about helping people put themselves in a better financial position by minimizing and avoiding as much as possible some of those big liabilities like tax. Once we have that out of the way, we can start to use this system to accomplish your short-term financial goals, whether that's family banking, whether it's getting out of debt, whether it's whatever, building a food storage, buying rental real estate, whatever it is, you can use your policy to, to offset future liabilities like tax and to accomplish short-term financial goals. Any last thoughts for you on what we've talked about today, Spencer? No, I mean, it's a, it's a really flexible tool, and I think, I mean, it fits in almost every every situation. It's something that, that people can utilize. Okay. Well, I don't know about you, man, but I had a lot of fun today talking about this. I'm, I'm really, really excited that you joined our team. I'm, I'm still fairly new here as well, but just sitting next door to you in the office and having an opportunity to, to hear what you do and the expertise that you bring to the table, man, you, you're doing a great job out there, and it's fun to watch the impact that you're having with, with our clients. Um, if you are interested more in this concept, please, we, we really you know, encourage you to reach out to us. Our services, what we do, we work with our clients on a one-on-one -on -one basis. So you can access some of our resources, find out a little bit more about what this concept is and how it will, will affect you. But to really personalize it, you, you call us up and one of our advisors here will, will, will sit down with you on a webinar. So you can be right in the comfort of your office or your home. And we'll get to know you. We'll find out who you are, what you're trying to accomplish, what your goals are, what you have to work with, and where really you're trying to go. And we'll set up a custom design plan to help you get there. But once the plan is set up, that's not it, right? I mean, that's really just the beginning. Oh, I mean, we're, we're supporting you all the way through the life of your policy and uh, in, in all kinds of different ways. Continuing education, yeah. um, resources for, uh, for setting up amortization schedules for loans and things like that. Uh, we're, we're a continuing resource for you. I mean, once you have the policy, once you have it in place, that's really just the first step, right? We, we go through quite a, a series of education to get you to that point because oftentimes what we find that we're doing here with clients is we're creating new paradigms, breaking down old paradigms, Kind of what we a little bit referred to today, is a qualified plan the best place for you to put your money? Is a savings account the best place for you to put your money? Does Dave Ramsey make the most sense? Maybe to a certain point, but maybe not after that. So we, we kind of break down some of the traditional financial paradigms out there, and then we build up and replace them with some new paradigms, right? Paradigm life right there. Yep. So once we have a policy in place, we help you utilize that policy to achieve your financial goals. So Again, encourage you to reach out to us. We look forward to working with you. Uh, Spencer, it was a blast today. I had a good time talking with you today. I had a great time, too. Thanks, Ryan. All right, guys. Have a good week. You've been listening to the Wealth Standard Radio Show, your gold standard in everything financial. Thank you for listening.